positive. So if you look at our numbers today, Buffalo started for the Delta at about 1,200, the first game counts. We're close to 25,000 today. Um, going on to the smaller, just my block, Sable, we had 44 we knew of. We were around about 3,000. Zebra, we knew of five only. We're about 800 today. Did you uh, augment that? Never, not? ever introduced oh, anything wow. except for the lions and the cheetahs. Oh, gee. That's it, yeah. So everything everything has, has come on its own. The waterbuck, we knew we had about 20 or 30. You know, today, I guess we've got about 6,000 in the block. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace, and this is a Modern Huntsman production. The series from the front lines will be back in two weeks' time. Uh, it's supported by Rocky Talkie Radios, and that is the last two episodes that you've been hearing. Uh, only one reason, and it's just that I've just come back from Tanzania, and the next episode is from that trip where I was actually filming some a short documentary on the anti-poaching and conservation work there with the Robin Hurt Wildlife Foundation. So you're going to be hearing from Derek Hurt as episode three of From the Front Lines, but I haven't quite had time to integrate the cool field audio with the sit-down interview I did with him. Um, so that's going to be in two weeks, but you can still get 10% off Rocky Talkie Radios if you visit rockytalkie.com forward slash into the wilderness. I've had them the whole time that I've been away the last two months. They've worked flawlessly. And uh, given how much I've used them to radio people to tell them to drive now or walk over a ridge while I've been filming, I think they're going to be a permanent fixture of my kit bag as I travel and film in different parts of the world for the foreseeable future. In this episode, we're going back to the From the Field series, which started in episode 200. It was three episodes, highly integrated with field audio, very highly produced. I, we did seven or eight interviews. Um, Tyler Sharp and I sat down while we were on a project in Mozambique at Zambezi Delta Safaris. Uh, so a lot of the sit-down interviews that we did with all of the experts there, we had to cut so much of that out to put those shows together. A couple of weeks back, you heard from Willem, who was the conservation biologist at Zambezi Delta Safaris. So in this show, you're going to hear from Mark Haldane, who is the man behind the incredible conservation success in the Delta. If you want to read more about our time in Mozambique, there's a, a couple of articles that were actually released in Volume 8 of Modern Huntsman. If you head over to modernhuntsman.com, look uh, for the volumes. Volume 8 was the African volume, and you will see a story about uh, the cheetah relocation that was done there and the anti-poaching work at the Zambezi Delta Safaris. But before we get into that, a big shout-out and thank you to this week's Patreon supporters, uh, who in the top tier include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marshington, the guys at South Escher Stalking, Dick Ekstromer, Mark Zabrowski, and Leslie Cumming. Thank you so much for your help. And if you would like to help support this show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. I have my feet firmly under my desk for the next couple of weeks while I'm at home in Scotland processing all of the footage that I took over the last two months, finishing my feature doc, Paid in Blood, which I just got the next edit of that back from the brilliant editor that is David Zuccarelli last night. So we have a meeting in a few hours after I release this podcast um, to go over some tweaks and finishes 
uh, and then probably another one or two weeks of tweaking before heading out to the guys doing the sound design and color, etc. Still looking for support for post-production of that, so if you want to head over to byronpace.com and look up films, Paid in Blood, uh, you will can read all about uh, all about that film, watch the trailers, and see how to support production of that. Um, I've also been testing a whole heap of gear. I've been a Sony guy for quite a long time, um, but with a whole heap of things dying on me and going wrong while I was away, I've had a massive revamp of all of my production gear, and uh, I've gone back to Canon after five or six years. So that's been exciting, but also very time-consuming as I've been sitting on my sofa playing with menus and setting up gear basically for the entire weekend. So that's what's ahead of me. Unfortunately, a lot of desk time, which is uh, a mind shift from the last two months where basically I filmed almost every single day while I was in Africa. But I hope that you enjoy this fantastic conversation with Mark Haldane. And probably the next time you hear an intro from me, I might very well be traveling somewhere again. Mark, this has been a truly incredible seven days that's felt like a day. It's gone so quickly. We've had a chance to speak to a lot of amazing experts over the last couple of days on the podcast and hear details about the lion relocations and the cheetah relocation that we're here for now. One of the, although everybody's mentioned it, one of the kind of pieces that that is missing in this story is the person who's been there from the very beginning, which is which is you. Tell me how this story really started, how Katada 11, where we are right now, came into existence in terms of the conservation plan that we're seeing here today. And tell me what it was like at the beginning. All right. I first arrived here in 1994, pretty much by chance. Um, I was meant to do a safari in Botswana, which for a long story got cancelled. And I had a very uh, adventurous client called Philippe de Jonge from Belgium. And I phoned him. I said, our Botswana leopard hunt has been cancelled due to a debacle on quota and a bit of dishonesty. What do you want to do? He said, I don't care. As long as it's somewhere that's wild. I don't want to go anywhere where I see a fence. The wilder, the better. I'd heard about Mozambique. And uh, I'd been up here to have a look a little bit um, unsuccessfully at areas. And I knew a chap called Anton Marais, who had this block in partner, partnership with my current partner, Carlos. So I phoned Anton and I said to him, I'd like to come and do a hunt up there. He said, man, I'd be so happy if you do. So we're battling up there. It's battle to get clients there. The war's just over. Everyone's petrified of landmines. Um, go and have a look. And then I want to talk to you. So off we came here. <clears throat> we arrived here. It was one of the wilder places I'd ever been to. Um, we landed on the strip here. We came in a little charter plane all the way from Johannesburg, at Cherokee 6. It took like half the day to get here. Uh, I came in with one Australian client and my friend Philippe, and uh, we were on a buffalo hunt. Um, the buffalo hunt was very successful. Uh, we've, the quotas were tiny. At that stage, there were only about 1,200 buffalo in the delta. Um, but there was a big herd right on the edge, and they only had three or four hunts that year, so it was pretty successful. Man, it was an understatement. I absolutely fell in love with the area. Not so much the game, 
because we saw precious little. We saw the buffalo, so those made an impression on me. Um, I didn't fully realize at the time how low the buffalo population actually was. And uh, the other animal that was relatively plentiful was the Sunni, because during the war, all the local villages were, were displaced by the war. They were forced to move into, into the larger villages where they could be controlled, where they couldn't supply uh, the rebels with food, uh, uh, and and the government could give them some form of protection. So the military on both sides, rebels and the military, and on top of it, the Russians that were involved here, they wouldn't waste a, a bullet on a little Sunni or a Red Diker. So those little chaps were pretty much spared. Um, so we had a great safari. Both clients came in here, both got buffalo, had a good time, both got Sunni. But I tell you what, we hardly saw a warthog or a reed buck. I mean, it was just, it wasn't here. I went home, Anton phoned, he said, what did you think of the area? I said, I loved it. He said, well, why don't you buy me out? It was that quick. He said, I'll practically give it to you. I'm done. And he'd had a rough time. He'd been here since 92. He'd even been taken hostage by the rebels wow. for three days. Um, and then realizing that he was, you know, probably on the right side they, they well not on the right side he was not involved on either side they released him um i said well i'd come and i'll get involved provided he stayed involved because he was a an existing safari operator nobody really wanted to come to mozambique in those days and we needed sort of 10 or 15 safaris a year to make this work so he reluctantly agreed to stay in he practically gave me my shares in the operation and uh, that all came together from '94. Took a while for me to get written up officially in the in the share certificates and that, but I essentially ran the operation from '94. So fortunately, we had a pretty strong Botswana operation and South African. And my brother, who's involved with me, and it, my younger brother, I said, "Listen, this is not going to make us any money for a while, but it will eventually." Uh, be the crown of our operation if we look after it because it's truly wilderness and there is definitely a movement towards these unfenced little you know operations so we agreed um, the first thing we did was we established an anti-poaching unit because there were lots of signs of poaching in those days big snare lines with a hundred snares in them so I got a little anti-poaching unit going and the professional hunters when they weren't hunting actively went and did anti-poaching with the guys. And it suppressed it, you know, we made a bit of an, a bit of an impact. Um, a scientist, an American scientist called Dr. Richard Belfus, came and did one of the first game counts here. And we were chatting and he said to me, there's a phenomenon that's played out throughout the world that when an area's wildlife is absolutely plundered, the remaining little pockets of wildlife all gravitate towards the area of the best habitat and the best protection. And that just so happened to be here. So those first years, we, we had roughly 1,200 buffalo in the swamps. There were probably another 100 scattered around the forests. We knew of five zebra, uh, five, just five zebra. Um, 44 sable, we had one herd of 44 sable, and then a couple of satellite bulls out there. You would maybe see a warthog once a week. Um, Reedbuck. You probably see one reedbuck a day if you're on the floodplains. Um, waterbuck, I mean, you've seen them now when we fly over there, thousands. Loads, yeah. We used to get one waterbuck on quota, and most years we didn't one. shoot it 
Huh. Not because we were great conservationists, it was because we couldn't find one to shoot. <laughs> so that's kind of what we started with. And uh, as old Richard Belfast predicted, the game started to gravitate back. And with our protection, we didn't stop the poaching, but we suppressed it. <clears throat> and the game responded incredibly well. And every year we had these amazing um, increments. And, you know, before we knew it, we were up there into incredible numbers. Today, I'm told by some of the, the, the guys that are involved with Sable that we have the highest free-range population in Africa, which That's is incredible. Ar around 3,000. Yeah. And you said that from 40-odd animals? F from 40-odd. Now, look, more would have gravitated yeah. in here, um, but certainly you go to our herds in September, every cow's got a little cough. So, so the numbers are, are incredible, you know. We can't – Sable don't like – high density of game so we can't really go more than this our neighbors in area 14 had no sable that they knew of they've now got a reasonable population of have, sable. have they spilled over from here they've spilled over area 10 also had no sable that they knew of probably as recently as 15 years ago and now they've got a fantastic population they do a good job in area 10 look after their game and it's come back greatly spilled over from here so that's kind of the road that, that, that brought us in here. Um, I've kind of gone a little off topic, I think. What was your no. original question? No, that was – I, was, was I, I, I want, yeah, I want yeah. to understand how you got to a, the amazing success that we're seeing today and the abundance yes. of gaming. For us, the, the, the journey and realization, although you know, we'd read lots about it and we, we knew people or know people who have been here before we arrived, when we were flying in with your son yes. – all this amazing habitat, nothing. No, we were seeing no game, pretty yes. much. Well, I, think, I don't think border. I saw any game. And then he said, "Oh no, we've just crossed the border now of the concession." And then all of a sudden, every open pocket that we could see amongst the trees, you were seeing warthog, and you were seeing yeah. waterbuck, and you would, yeah, if just yeah. everywhere you were seeing them, and it was so stark yeah. because I was looking, I was so excited. I'd never, as much as we both spend a lot of time in Africa, oh, look. Behind us. <laughs> a little bushbuck. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd never been to Mozambique. Tyler, you hadn't been to Mozambique before either, had you? Not legally. Not legally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in the, the southern border of Tanzania in an area called uh, Luquica. Yes. It was one of Michelle's old hunting areas. Yes. And we were on that. So is it the Ravuma River down there? It is, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we had actually swam across just to say that we went to Mozambique. You didn't hear about crocodiles. <laughs> well, it was an area where it was so hot and so dry, you couldn't, you, 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 like it was so shallow. We just like, yeah, otherwise we wouldn't have done it. But yeah, so technically this is my first visa official visit to Mozambique. Yeah. Um, so I was so excited to just see what the place was like. And then also, as we were flying, kind of so disappointed not to see any game until until we got over your border. And it, and it was almost literally within a couple of minutes of him saying, oh, we're in the concession now. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I think leading up to what you've been asking me there, maybe I should add one or two things. So the anti-poaching is definitely, was definitely the, the turning point for us when we started the anti-poaching. And then once people saw we had a bit of anti-poaching, clients were amazing. They'd come along and say, well, what do you need, you know? For the anti-poaching. Well, I tell you what, I'll sponsor two motorbikes and I'll sponsor the uniforms. And it wasn't even an ask. It was like you'd be sitting around the fire and, man, I really, I see the potential here. So we had a lot of help and it was pretty much every other client who came in here would say, well, 
If he has a thousand bucks for your anti-poaching, he has five thousand bucks for your anti-poaching. Guys would ask me for these gin traps that they take out. Oh, I'll give you a couple of hundred bucks. We now take a shipment over to Dallas every year and sell, <laughs> and sell them. them. And we get, you know, we ask a thousand bucks for them. Most guys give you double that at least, you know. But <clears throat> the anti-poaching was the turning point. But I think as as a as a young man, a relatively young man, I figured I could stop it all with a with a fist of iron, which I tried, but it didn't work. It worked to a point, but we didn't have the, the, the local community behind us. We were actually at loggerheads with the local community because they basically farmed subs subsistently, and this was a meat factory for them. Everyone denied it, but that's, that's fact what happened, you know. So, um, you know, a lot of people said to me, hey, you need to, get your community relations up and I guess I thought about it more and more and slowly we uh, we worked over to that side and uh, it actually, the, the response was really, really great. The first thing we did was we started doing a meat drop and I pulled all my staff in who historically got all the meat that we didn't use and I said, look guys, we have to come up with a system here where the local community gets something to. No, 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 they don't work here. What do they need meat for? I said, no, it's, it's, I'm not asking you guys, I'm telling you guys, you know, that's how it's going to work. So finally they agreed after much backwards and forth that the community would get all the buffalo. And in those days we, we had an elephant on quota too. So all the buffalo meat, any elephant meat, and the hippo meat. All the plains game animals go to my own staff. Obviously, we take what we need for the kitchen, for our camp, for the balance, and that's how we've done it. So we weigh all the meat um, that we distribute, um, including what goes to our staff, because they're all part of the community. And on average, in a normal year, we average 31 tons of meat. So if you put it back into meat terms, every household will get about 10 pounds of meat every week during the season. So the early season now is a little quieter because uh, we have smaller groups now, this being an exception. Um, the later season, from about August, we get quite hectic and there's a lot more buffalo coming through. So we weigh everything, record it. Every village headman gets a meat drop. He knows to coordinate on this day. He's delivering meat. They sign for it. We weigh it all and it, off it goes. So that was the one turning point. I said to the guys, look, if we're giving you guys meat, and I catch a poacher from your village, then you lose your meat drop for three months. And uh, they agreed, no problem. And we did catch a couple of guys, and they did lose their meat drop, and there was lots of whining. And that must have pissed off the people who weren't poaching did, within yeah, the, in the village. So you had that, that yeah. peer community pressure to yeah. behave. So that started, and, and all of a sudden I saw the community now being more positive towards us. You'd drive past, you'd get smiles and waves and yeah. just little things, you know. We were happy today when we were in, yeah, in town. Are, yeah. know, <laughs> you know, things have changed a lot since then. Then I said to them, okay, guys, it's a slow walk. We're only just getting this operation. What do you guys need? Now, we badly need a, a, a mill for our corn. So that was the first. I don't know when we did it. It was probably around 15 years ago. What uh, we just saw today. The one you saw today. Okay. Still the same original mill. I think we're in the really? fourth or fifth engine that's gone okay. through there. But it seems like a silly little thing. But if you consider that every bit of corn and, and cassava they eat is ground in a bowl physically by the woman. So that's a huge time saver It's a huge them. time saver for them, yeah. So we started with that. Then we went to the meat. Um, 
then one of my great old clients called Lewis Corbel passed away, and uh, his his uh, the lady that headed up his businesses, a very wealthy man, Carolyn Huckabee, said um, once he passed away, she'd like to do something because he gained so much out of coming here. So she came to us and said, let's build a school. I'll supply all the materials. You guys, you guys do the management and the labor and the logistics of getting it built. So that was the next step. We built a three-classroom school, headmaster's office, and three teachers' houses. And then we bought the, built the chief house. So slowly, the community was starting to feel the benefits of being involved with us. Since then, we've gone on. We, we had the community fishing program. They weren't allowed to fish in the concession. And I said, you know what? It's ridiculous. We have this huge um, uh, area on the delta, which you can't overfish because of the nature of it. It's covered with papyrus. So it's just too difficult to overfish It's too it. difficult to. But all the little holes all in the edge in it. Yeah. So you couldn't exploit it and, and just finish all the catfish. But if you fish all the little holes in the edge. So I brought in a rule, no netting. Um, so it was all just big fish, and we now issue a license. Um, don't know if any of you guys have flown over fishermen. If you have, then first thing they do is they pick up their, their Oh, is that what they license. were? Yeah, we did, yes. and I didn't know yeah. what they were doing. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's actually a cattle ear tag with okay. a number written on it, and I change the color every year. Okay. And it comes with a string, and they hang it around their neck. And we'll tell them where they can fish based on where the lines are okay. and also where we don't want any pressure. And, and um, so the fishing worked well. We facilitated too. If a group of 10 go and fish, uh, we'll send a tractor and trailer to go and fetch them. And they'll come back with a ton of fish. Wow. I mean, it's proper. You know, they smoke it all. They bring it back. Some of it they sell. Some of it they eat themselves. Um, so that was the start. Then we went on to the beekeeping, which is relatively new project now. Yeah. How did that, how did that come to, to being? I've kept bees since I was probably 12 years old. Uh, I've always been fascinated. So you had your own me. personal mm. fascination in it. Okay. And then I had a, uh, I had a, a commercial operation in South Africa for a lot of years, which when I got too busy, I, I sold in the end. Um, and when I came here, I had a dozen beehives around camp, primarily just to give camps honey. And, uh, and I saw the guys were interested in them, so... That and they, and it wasn't it wasn't me who invented the community honey project. It's been going great in Zambia, Tanzania, so I figured it's a good idea here too. So that's where it started, and it's been a little rough. Uh, uh, I'm not going to lie to you. Last year, um, we had a, a great honey crop, and we left it in the boxes too long, and the bees ate half of the honey because we didn't time it correctly. Um, also, a gang of uh, Six members of our village took it upon themselves to raid all their their uh, village mates' hives and steal the honey. So they went through probably a hundred beehives and cleaned all the honey out in a very short period. Um, of course, hacked. They didn't understand how the frames worked and the extractor, the centrifugal. So they just absolutely butchered it all. But the community caught them. They took them to the police. They charged them, and the guys got I think eighteen months prison time. So hopefully that's, you know, I said, guys, I can't do this unless you can help yourselves here too. So that's been a positive one. So, so what have you been facilitating? Is it the hives themselves? The hives and themselves. The um, and I have a, a group of guys that I sent off to get trained. 
Um, some guys from the community, two guys that are permanent on my staff. One is that chap who was with us today, Zachariah, and they do they do the, the, the harvesting every year. When they harvest your honey, it's weighed right then and there with you present, and you are then paid for your honey. And about, so you buy it off them? I buy it off them. Okay. And at the moment, we're utilizing majority here. Mm. It's one, good. I've tried yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, one of the hotels in um, in the archipelago of Villanculos is uh, – is using it as well. In the long run, we hope for a, an export market. So the next thing, we'll have to f- raise a bit of money and build a, a world-class honey extraction facility, and then we'll take it from there. And obviously, you, you've set this up because it's just part of the community engagement it, it system is. that you have because there's no – I mean, you're getting honey here, but yeah. you're, you're buying it back off the people. So that, I I, there's no financial gain here for you, I'm not, I don't well, think. Well, there? there is a little bit. Um there's no financial gain for me personally, but basically we we buying the honey at a at a at a rate that they would get if they if they delivered it to a, a bottling facility. We are then going to bottle it and hope to get a markup on it. And the markup we're going to take the the profit that we make out of the bulk rate from from the the actual beekeeper to what we sell it as. We want to use that back in our anti-poaching and other community programs. Okay. So, it's a way yeah. to help fund the management yeah. of the system yeah. as a whole. And I think the nice thing about it is majority community programs don't are not self-funding. Mm-hmm. You need to continually be out there fundraising to keep them going. Which in the long run is not a sustainable model. It's not model. a sustainable model. So, the honey absolutely is. So, in an, in an absolutely perfect scenario, maybe the honey production will fund the, the Zambezi Delta farm, for example, because mm-hmm. we have a tractor plowing there and fertilizer and all the rest. But that's what we hope for in the long run. Tell me a little bit more about the uh, the, the community farm that we were at, at today. Okay. Um, I put the drone up in the air so I could get a, an, idea an idea of the scale there. Yeah. In comparison to the the very small scale plots that you see growing yes. beside all of the the houses yeah. al- along that along that one road, that it that's more not, not industrial makes it sound bigger than it is, yes. but it is. Uh, it's more it, commercial. Sort exactly. Of, yeah, yeah, it's got a commercial feel yeah. to it. How did that come about, and why was it important to facilitate that? Um, so what happened was we had villages scattered throughout this area. Um, legally, if you go and read uh, the law, they're not meant to be any people inside these katadas, oh, these really? safari areas. Yeah, huh. but it's way too political. Now, no one would ever come here and say, "Out you go," you know. And besides, these are guys just trying to, just trying to live. You know, and they were probably always here. Like, and they were always here when I got you. They were here. They gravitated back a bit after the war, but according to the chief, nobody who didn't live here ever came back. Um, and also, most of the chaps here would rather live in the village than out here. You know, they kind of see these guys as second-rate citizens a little. So it's a hard way to live well, out th- here. These small villages that yeah. are out here. Yeah. Huh. So all of our more successful staff who've been with for a while, first thing they do is buy a house in the village. Hmm. And, and that'll be home for them rather than out here in the bush. You know. hmm. And so how far away is that? It's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive from okay. here. Yeah. So... Uh, these little villages were scattered around here, and they were certainly still bush bush meat factories. You know, they were they were definitely harvesting meat whenever whenever we we didn't have our finger on them, they were up to mischief. So we got a really progressive thinking administrator who lives in Maramea, which is the closest village, but she has a big interest in what goes on all around and a genuine interest. 
um, on on our side and on the people's side. I mean, it's not like she she's not a compassionate lady, but she wants to see progress in her area. So I went to her and I said, "Look, um, ma'am, this is not is not working. Ultimately, th- these concessions are owned by the government. We lease them. The game is owned by the license, the government." We pay a license for every animal that we harvest. So here. you're a caretaker here. We're a caretaker here. Yeah. We get a long lease. We get 15 years. We've just applied for 25 based on our on our, on the model and what we've achieved. We don't have the onset, but I, we'll get 20, I'm sure. I said to her, so I educated her on the whole system. And also our local community gets 20% back on all the fees we pay government, which is the, the hunting tickets for each animal, a, a license, as you guys call them, and also we pay a lease on the block. 20% goes back to the local community. Does that go back from government? Do they from feed government, it in? yeah. Okay. We have to facilitate it a little bit. We have to help them form committees, set up bank accounts. Okay. And it works pretty well. Every now and then someone gets their fingers in the till, but typically it runs pretty well. And they'll do, make a community decision of what to do what to do with the funds. Some years they split it amongst every household. Some years, one year they bought a whole lot of corn and it arrived here and everyone got corn on a dry year. But it, it works pretty well. So I told her, this is a win-win. The better this block is, the, 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 the bigger the quotas I can take here, the more benefit for the community. She said, well, it's absolutely a no-brainer. We need to move these people. So she came here with me. We had a meeting with everybody and said, look, guys, we, we can't afford to move everyone in one year because obviously you must be compensated for your crops. Um, you might have permanent things like mango trees and, you know, a, a little house. As, as rudimentary as it may seem to us, it's home for these guys and has some value. So she said, okay, let's start with this village. She brought in the agricultural department. They valued his fields and his house and came up with a value. And we and we started moving them. And the guys were very, very willing. There wasn't one person who stood up and said, you guys are pushing me off my, my ground. It was positive. You know, they, they felt it was fair. We paid them out, and we also gave them another option, which was the, the Zambezi Delta farm. We said, if you move, we'll give you a piece of ground in there. <clears throat> very soon, the other villages remaining, the last ones I moved last year, um, and they were like champing at the bit, hey, we, we want to move now, you know, you, you promised, you know. I said, guys, I don't have any income this year, but please, you know, we need to move, you know. And this is because life is better it's in better. the new location. It is better. You, you have the school right near you, you have the clinic right near you, and you have a farm. The first year, these guys were looked at and they thought, mm, we don't know about this big-scale rice farm. No one's burning anything. And this fertilizer, you know, no one really believed it. And when they saw the crops, I only had 20 people participate the first year. Uh, every year, it's more and more. So all these families, some of them chose to just take their money and move out of our whole area, which which was positive for me. I'm not going to lie. But majority of them moved into that area where that farm is. Um, <clears throat> they each got two and a half acres, uh, the guys that chose to take it up. And they got anywhere from about 30 to 60 bags of rice. Of, of 120 pound bags of rice, and that goes an awfully long way to 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 uh, to survive. So that's where it started, and it's been so successful that last year in that village area, which is right near my border, uh, we've put a cut line around. All agreed, it won't expand out. Um, we expanded the project to a second pan like that, 
um, and we've got more and more people involved. So uh, on the plus side, it's creating food for people that need food to survive, taking more of the pressure off the bushmeat trade. Um, and the second very important thing is it's as important for us to save the, uh, the environment here as it is uh, to to save the wildlife. Uh, you know, as some clever guy said once, if you're a true conservationist, you you conserve the soil and water first, then the flora, then the fauna. And if you do it the other way around, you stand to lose the whole lot. So what was happening here is our local community practiced the slash and burn practice. Which is so common yeah. very across common. the world, and, actually. And to be honest with you, very successful. I mean, they not for the environment, for the guys trying to produce food. They slash and burn it. They put one crop in, they get a fantastic crop out of it. Next year, they don't, they, it doesn't, they don't even use it. They move on to the next one. So every year, each family was probably clearing five acres of, of uh, relatively low productivity ground, using it once and moving on. And of course, it was devastating. That area where the village is now that you drove through with us today, that was originally pristine forest, that whole area. And look at it now. I mean, it's pretty much open, you know. So there was what my deal with them was, you guys have got to stop practicing slash and burn. And they said, no, that's fine, but they do need to clear a little bit around their houses and whatever. So it's, it's you've got to be a little bit, take. little bit yeah. of give and take, mm -hmm. but it's probably cut down by 90% of what we were seeing. So uh, going back to the whole thing now is that now you guys experience today the friendliness of the local community, lots of laughter and smiles. And and if someone doesn't greet you, I can tell you now it's just because he's uncomfortable mm -hmm. and he's shy. It's not because he's aggro about yeah. us being here. Everybody feels the positive spin. There's a reciprocal relationship, yeah. which is, is very clear. They, they were is, yeah. alarmed by the ginger Scotsman. <laughs> <laughs> that was more than likely what it was. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that's really interesting about this is that You've obviously uh, integrated um, a fairly basic agricultural system here, which has allowed you to reduce the the mass pressure across the land. But you're also the community is also benefiting from a sustainable use of the wildlife, which is the same wildlife in some regard that they were harvesting through bushmeat trade before. Yeah. But now it's in a much more controlled manner and with yeah. with much more selection. So they're still gaining the benefit from that protein, but the wildlife populations are actually increasing rather than yeah. being negatively impacted. And I think the other thing that's quite important is is there was commercial bushmeat trade from within our villages, okay. but a lot of it came from outside. So a lot of it, I mean, we've- So this isn't for subsistence, You're to yeah, be clear. You're yeah. not talking about subsistence yeah. bushmeat. This is going back to market. Yeah, going back to market. I mean, we've caught people from as far away as Malawi Wow, coming here running snare lines, you know. Look, our guys were also involved in, 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 in the commercial side. I mean, they facilitated a lot of it. But now the benefits of this area are going back totally to the people that, that live here. Yeah, And that is kind of how the whole system has come together. The anti-poaching enforces it, and the community are now positive towards it. And they benefit from it. And, that, and that, that's the only way we believe this will remain a win-win solution. One of the strange things is, is most concessionaires dread a, a visit by government when the government authorities go and see the local chief 
and <laughs> because of all the negative things. All the negative. And they'll say, well, the guys do this and they don't do this and they don't do that. For us, it's actually been quite the contrary. So Chief Torzo, who you met when we released mm -hmm. the Cheetahs. Very smart-looking gent. Yes. He'll sit there and boast about it. He'll say, you know what? This is the best concession in Mozambique. And these so guys he takes do this pride for in it. A, he's now taking pride in it. Wow. You know? Which is, I mean, look, he's still a scallywag every now and then. <laughs> but we can live with it, you know. So it's all in all, it's, it's very positive. So if you look at our numbers today, Buffalo started for the Delta at about 1,200, the first game counts. We're close to 25,000 today. Um, going on to the smaller, just my block, Sable, we had 44 we knew of. We were around about 3,000. Zebra, we knew of five only. We're about 800 today. Did you uh, augment that? Never, not? ever introduced anything oh, wow. except for the lions and the cheetahs. Oh, gee. That's it, yeah. So everything, everything is, has come on its own. The waterbuck, we knew we had about 20 or 30. You know, today, I guess we've got about 6,000 in, in the block. The reedbuck, I wouldn't know where to start to count them. <laughs> There's a lot. You know, we, we do a delta count ourselves every year. And government does a uh, – sorry, we do a floodplain count ourselves, which is just our floodplain in Katari 11. And then government every second year does the whole delta, which we're very privileged that we do the flying for them. So we get to see um, everywhere. But our, our, our floodplain count is an area of just over 100,000 acres. And um, we've been doing it since the lions were released. So we can monitor the impact of the lions on the game. And so far, no no change. And we sit at around about 13,000 animals just on that open open uh, grassy floodplain area. So it, it gives you a bit of an indication of where it is today. Uh, I guess the only thing that didn't come back on its own was, was, you know, was the lions. And we've spoken about it for many, many years about lions. And I always put the brakes on. Um, to bring them back? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, is that because you were worried about the game population? Uh, absolutely. Because that's your revenue. That's our revenue. That's how you sustain yeah. all of the stuff you've just been talking about. Yeah. That's how you pay for it. And, and I believe we waited for the right moment. Mm -hmm. When we brought the Lions in, it was the time that our game was spilling out onto our neighboring areas, which I think is great. That's the way it should happen. But it was, it was the right time. Um, and we're now coming into the third year now, and our game numbers have, have held steady. So we believe it was, it was, it was the right time. Um, just to emphasize a point, how and well, I, I mean, I guess it's been everything, but the the money and the economics that we've been talking about that's allowed you to facilitate this and pay yes. for it, that has all been through hunters coming in here. Is that correct? It has. I always tell people it's through it's through hunters, hunting related industry, and hunting organisations. That that's pretty much uh, pretty much it. We haven't had a cent from anybody yet who's not involved in. Some one way or the other. Actually, that's actually not totally true. Last year, for the first time, we received funding from a group called Tusk. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Tusk are great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the first time. They're pro hunting, no issue with sustainable, but the rest has all come from from hunting-related revenue. And do, and do you think that that uh, lack of support, despite the very clear success that you're able to demonstrate, is because of the the difficulties in integrating a hunting model in the bigger picture of some of these international NGOs? Yeah, I think also, uh, to be honest with you, as hunters, we've done a shocking job of um, converting that that uh, the population that sits on the fence about hunting and, and non-hunting. 
we haven't done ourselves any favors. Um, and I think we need to, to be yeah. honest with you. Well, that's obviously why we're here, you know, and that's a lot of the work that Byron and I focus on. But I think that it's been for us to see all of these things and especially talking to Willem and, and to Joao and, and to Vincent about the, the just monumental accomplishment of not only reintroducing the lions, but seeing that population double yeah. or more. And now being on the the verge of reintroducing speeda, speedas, well, that well, works. That works yeah. as a good nickname. <laughs> Cheetos, yeah. uh, you know, and for that to be a case study that was made possible entirely through hunting dollars. And, and we asked Dan about it, and and he said that he his kind of hope for you know the ripple effect is that other potential non hunting organizations would see this and yeah. and and step up to the plate, and, and that we would hope to bring you know, kind of across the aisle collaboration through something like that. And I think you could do that in, in an area like this. I, th I think you're right. We also, um, look, 95% of our in revenue comes from from hunting, but uh, we've delved a little into the photographic side. Whereas now if a family comes and uh, dad's a hunter and the rest of the family not, we offer a dedicated photographic side for them. And it's gone unbelievably well. Um, and for probably the last 10 years, we've done a month of birding. We have an amazing birding area here, one of the best in the world, actually, from the 15th of November till about the end of December. So we do normally about a month of birding. And we'll probably slowly expand a little on our photographics. I've actually got a standalone family coming to do the whole conservation model next year. They want to get involved in the collaring. They want to see the scientific side. So we'll slowly delve a little more in that. And within a couple of years, we hope to put up a, a small exclusive type photographic lodge as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, tell me, why is the the gathering of all the scientific knowledge around the reintroductions of lions and the cheetahs which are here now why has it been so important for you to clearly facilitate that i think that there's probably more scientists sitting around that camp yeah um, in terms of prof professional sure. people here yeah. than there are actually professional yeah, it's, hunters it's a very good very good uh, question and i think that we've actually come out pretty unscathed with uh with the uh rabid anti-hunters because look They've got nothing to really attack us on because everything we've done here is, is scientifically backed up. I mean, you take Willem for argument's sake or, or, or Joao the veterinarian or Vincent for that matter. None of those guys are hunters. I mean, they'll, they'll shoot a reed buck to feed a sick lion or whatever, but they're not hunters by heart. They're not out there wanting to hunt everything. But they back the model 100%. And I think the reason is is that the science, if, if Willem comes in and says to me, Mark, you're shooting too many buffalo, and this is what science says, you can take X percentage off, and this is our population, we need to drop it, I'm going to do what he says. Otherwise, it's an absolutely pointless operation. So we are using his scientific numbers to justify everything we're doing on our takeoff side. Yeah, yeah. which... Is definitely not the case for 
every outfitter. No, it's not. I yeah. mean, but we've got a long-term vision here. Sure. You know, I'm 56 now. I still want to be bugging people around the campfire here at 80. <laughs> and it, it needs to carry on with the same trend. We're going to stop seeing the increases that we've seen shortly because of the because we pretty much stocked the capacity now. Um, right now, you guys see all this long grass. And what the hell is he talking about? Come and look at this place in October. It's like a golf course. You know, everything's been been grazed down heavily. The buffalo move deeper and deeper into the swamps as the water recedes, but uh, it gets it gets grazed. So, yeah, I think that on our plains game numbers, uh, we'll definitely see see them leveling off within the next couple of years. The buffalo prior to the war were at 45,000, but many of the scientists said they were totally overpopulated and they were actually quite a, a sickly bunch because of the numbers. Um, so where they'll be allowed to go to or what management will come in for them, I don't know. But I would imagine we can still, we can still increase the buffalo another 10,000, I'm sure, in the delta. And of course, now that you've got, you've actually got a predator of the buffalo here now as well, which we will have, help balance that. We have. And time will tell because uh, predators will typically take the, the prey species that number one is going to feed them the easiest, and number two, they have the least chance of being injured from. Which isn't buffalo for either. Which isn't buffalo for yeah. either. So when you've got this huge population of plains game, they're probably going to lean towards that. Um, we've only found two buffalo kills so far, and they were both old cows. So you're probably old, decrepit cows that they just happened upon opportunistically. Uh, <laughs> they weren't tied up. Um, if you look at places like Botswana, there's prides of lions that specialize on buffalo. But go to that area, and there's not a lot of other game. So I believe it would be a while before we see them specializing on the buffalo. Mm. Um, you said that uh, you had you had, had or have an operation in Botswana as well. We we don't have a concession there, but we do we do have a safari outfit there. Oh, okay, yeah, we, we just, work with existing Botswanan um, outfitters. Um, just because you brought it up, and it was the first thing that sprung into sprung to my mind, and it's something that we spent quite a bit of time talking about. How did you see things change there when the hunting ban? came in and now the discussions that are well I mean they, they did open it but I know COVID kind of screwed up the, yeah. the possibility of people yeah. actually being able to go with the opening of the, of the hunting um, I, I think it, I think Botswana's hunting ban was more political than than, uh, than pragmatic um, the uh, the previous president was anti-hunting and involved quite heavily in photographics um, he was personally involved, doesn't like financially involved. He, he was personally involved. Yeah, financially I read involved. that too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the new president was more, in my my belief, um, more pragmatic in that this is not my country. It's owned by the people of Botswana. Mm -hmm. And the people of Botswana are totally pro-hunting. And the benefits that they get, especially the rural communities, are huge. Mm. So absolutely. Very, very much like all the, the, the benefits that you've yeah. been discussing yeah. that, that happen here. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's, there's is an elephant-based um, safari outfit. I mean, for heaven's sake, they're overpopulated. They have over 200,000 elephants in Botswana. Yeah. And most of them are in the north. Yeah. yeah. And they agree most uh, conservation bodies agree that their carrying capacity is way under 100,000. So it's not like they're shooting the last of a species or anything. But those villages when they're harvesting sort of uh, – the original quotas were normally around 20 elephants a block. 
So that's 20 elephants worth of meat that that village gets to process and smoke. They uh, get the revenue like from the elephants. Three to five tons an animal. I mean, it's just incredible, the, mm. the, you know, the, the, the offspring. So, what were the amount uh, of interest? Did when the government, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but when the government put that ban in place, and all of a sudden that number of elephants, the protein from that was not wasn't going to the villages anymore. Did they compensate no, with anything? No, they didn't. So people just had people to find more very, money or very, very, went very hungry. Disgruntled. And the safari outfits closed down. And you know, you look at my safari outfit here. We employ seventy people, so those would certainly have employed thirty. You know. So there was 30 families that all of a sudden lost their income. So it had quite a ripple effect. But it's up and running, and it's running properly again now. Um, the guys have got full seasons, uh, uh, and it's going exceedingly well. So I think you'll see Botswana hunting go from strength to strength. There was quite a lot of commotion around the opening of it. Yeah, I remember the and first year. It kind of quickly died down. It did. Everyone's it, kind of going along. Yeah. And I wonder if that was because when, uh, I mean, I would imagine there would have been journalists, you know, BBC or whoever mm. on the ground there after the opening. Maybe they couldn't Maybe they couldn't find any local people who were upset about it. You know, <laughs> it I, does I, make you wonder. I, I definitely think there was one of it. And the one thing is the government were firm about it. They said, you know, the arrogance of a foreign nation telling us how to control our wildlife when we have an, 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 an exceptional conservation story here. Our elephants have actually outbred the habitat, you know, and you're telling us what we can do with ours. You know, Europe used to have lions. You guys killed them all. We've still got ours, you know. For heaven's sake, leave us alone. And they were firm on that, and I think it I remember the speech when, yeah. It, yeah, when it came out. Yeah. What do you think, I mean, clearly the, and this came up, I can't remember who it was with, but and in fact, it might have even just been around the dinner table. Clearly, the hunting that that is going on there now isn't actually going to tackle the issue of there being too many elephants. 100% is there a what do you see as a long term vision there with fixing I, that? What I, is what I is a massive know. problem? It is a massive, massive problem. Damn, I thought you were going to fix the problem no. here on the podcast, Mark. Look, I tell you what: if if if, if there were no people's emotions involved mm -hmm. here, you should put a gunship in the air and shoot one hundred and fifty thousand elephants. Can you imagine what the outcry in the world with that? But it would be the answer to save that environment because if you a true conservationist, as I said now, soil, water first, then the flora, then the fauna. They've already lost, they've already lost the flora, and they've lost the fauna. I mean, they're two thousand year old baobab trees that are having the bark strip from them. What's got more right on the planet? The two thousand year old baobab tree or a forty year old elephant that's overpopulated already? You know. So it's quite a – but that'll never float. And I'm intelligent enough to know that'll never float. Years ago, um, uh, a gentleman called Dick Eaton was commissioned to look into it. A wonderful old gentleman who actually uh, surveyed the whole of the Kalahari for the British government when it was called Bechuana Land. And uh, he's now lives in central Kalahari and they're a very strong hunting family big cattle ranches, and he was asked by government to look into it. And he came back with a, with a proposals, and it involved the culling of elephants, but the utilization of every single part of that elephant, from the skin to the bones to every piece of meat, a canning factory, a market, of course, to China, um, but it wasn't ever adopted. Photographics were just going so well in Botswana. It was a huge part of their, of their revenue, and they just – Unfortunately, 
for the elephants thought this will kill us. And I don't know what the solution is now. Well, I would hate to be the man sitting in the chair to make it. Mark, maybe for people listening who, and obviously, you know, elephant is a very sensitive subject, but, you know, Byron and I have, Byron more than I, but we've talked about it a lot on this podcast and, and tried to dive into the nuances. It's a very complex topic. Maybe for, for people who don't know the details or the history of this kind of thing, maybe talk a little bit about the difference of a situation like Botswana where there's a massive overpopulation versus other places in Africa because a common reaction to it is, well, aren't elephants endangered yes. you know, as a species? And so if you, if you wouldn't mind, maybe talk a little bit about the okay. differences in situations. Yeah. I think it's a very common misconception and one that, uh, that the press has done a good job in uh, cementing in place. Um, elephants are certainly endangered in certain parts of the world and they are highly sought after commodity the ivory um, northern mozambique's a great a great example where they had an exceptionally good population of elephants in, in niasa reserve i'm not going to quote numbers because i don't have them on my fingertips but they've been plundered they're probably five percent of what they used to be by just allowing poaching to run riot countries like uh, zimbabwe botswana namibia to a less extent, South Africa habitats a limitation there, but those countries have all got very healthy pop elephant populations. And most certainly in the case of Zimbabwe and Botswana, they've got an overpopulation. To the extent that those elephants are detrimental to the survival of other game. Um, when I was a young professional hunter in, in the, the mid to late 80s, I used to hunt an area called the Linyanti. And next to the Linyanti swamp, there was pristine forest on either side, hardwood forest. There were bushbuck in there. Um, the old Dugger boys would creep up and hide up there. Today, that area is sand all the way to the edge of the swamp, sand and grassland, because the elephants have eaten everything to stay alive. So <clears throat> I think the misconception, certainly if you go up into Central Africa, um, some of these areas where poaching has been allowed to carry on carry on without anyone um, monitoring it or controlling it they have elephants on danger there but in southern africa very very far from it hmm. yeah it's 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 amazing how poorly that is portrayed mm, it certainly is um and i i get i guess just telling those stories or trying to tell the stories like we've we are doing and will continue to do is really the only way to allow people to see it. But I think it, in some instances, it almost requires people to have their feet on the ground yeah, it does. for themselves. It does. Yeah. I mean, a, a trip to the Chobe National Park in Botswana will change your mind. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I stood on the Namibian side yes. quite a few years, maybe probably 10 years ago now. And the Namibian side was amazing. You yeah. look across the Botswana side and it was like... It, it was like a nuclear bomb had yeah. gone off. Just dead standing trees everywhere. I think, and, and th this is controversial and whether it will happen, and people have all got different opinions and mine is just picking up little bits of information from different people. That the elephants have started to move a little more into Angola and uh, they of course were absolutely plundered there during the war. So there's a little bit of hope that maybe some of the Ellies will start to move that way. Peter did quite a bit of flying, collaring elephants and seeing where they were moving. Um, I did a survey for the Angolan government whew, probably eight years ago. And uh, 
I was dismayed to see a hell of a lot of elephant carcasses. Still. Yeah. So there's a lot of, then there was a lot of poaching. There was still a lot of poaching. Mm. It was as recent as maybe eight years ago. Okay, well. So if they've got a, elephants are clever. I mean, you guys have seen the data on elephants when they collar and they walk in a straight line, they get to the border of a hunting block and they walk all the way around the border and then come out the other side. You know, they, they're not fools. So if, yeah. they, if they know if all that poaching is going on in Angola, they're not going to go there. But if they do get a lid on it, then… There's all this huge area that the they habitat can have. Is DRC as well. I think yeah. there was some parks in the center there because it's such a big country where there was 150, 180,000 elephants and now yeah. there's 300. Yeah. There is habitat still there, it but it, human intervention yeah. through wars or yeah. agriculture or fencing yeah. has prevented these natural movements. I think it's quite an interesting thing when, when on the elephants, when we got here, um, the elephants had a natural migration in the area here. And they moved from the forested areas into the swamps. And typically you could set your, you could look at your calendar. On the 1st of September, they, there would be a movement into the swamps. And they would stay in there from September until the sort of monsoon type rains started in January. They'd go back to the forests again. So during the war, there was a lot of elephant poaching. Um, the rebels financed a lot of their arms with, with, um, with ivory, I believe the South African government, uh, I doubt they'll admit it, facilitated it. Um, but after the war, the elephants calmed down a little, and, they, and this, this natural movement happened. Um, probably around about 15 years ago, we had a huge spike in elephant poaching in the whole of Mozambique. It wasn't happening so much in, in our area, because by that stage, we had a pretty good anti-poaching unit of about 22 people, and we we monitored the whole area. But what would happen is they'd wound elephants outside. They were shooting them with a light-caliber rifle, of AK-47. They'd come in and they'd die in here. And we'd find them with the ivory intact. So um, it sparked, and, and there was a gang of professional elephant poachers that I believe were very successful. And we used to see a lot of bulls in the delta, big, old, mature bulls. In a period of about three years, they disappeared. Wow. So Only in three years. In three years, that quick. And we started with about 400 elephants. Today, we've got about 600. But we don't, In your concession? In, no, in no. the delta. In the delta. In the whole. delta. But, so we collared um, some elephants to see where they moved. <laughs> and since we've collared them, they've not left the delta. So I think even though it's a harsh environment, being in that water during the wet season – they go into the islands and that, but they find they find that they're safe out there. Uh, okay, and I th well, that's what I believe. I don't have. I mean, it makes sense. It makes yeah. sense, yeah. So we have more recently, um, with the anti-poaching being going up a level between Area Ten ourselves, Area Twelve, our inland block was being taken over by Gorongosa National Park. They also do a great job in the anti-poaching, and I think we've pretty much stopped elephant poaching. Touch wood. It's it's we haven't had a we haven't found a dead elephant yet that's been shot for probably three or four years. Um and no one else has reported any anything to me either. They've caught that ring of, of elephant poachers. Um so that elephant that collar we got on that elephant in the forest the other day is vital for us to know where they're moving. Because you can't protect an elephant if you don't know where he goes. So the ones in the swamps have been a kind of little bit boring for us because they just stay within the swamp area. But getting that one um, 
in the forest is going to make a big difference to us. The, the ones in the delta are typically around 250 elephants, but we do see up to 600 elephants there in the dry season, which is November. So my guess is the bull that we collared is part of that, of the group that hasn't transitioned to living in the swamps totally. But I'll almost bet you he'll be in there. So it'll be fascinating to see what happens in the next yeah. six months. Yeah. And it'll be fascinating to see how far they go because yeah. people talk about these uh, migration routes and that from Gorongosa National Park all the way through. But we haven't seen it on anything that we've collared. The buffalo stay in the swamps, but I believe they always have. The ones in the forests stay in the forests. We've collared them too. We haven't seen any migration of them other than following water and food. But the elephants is one that we, we really hope to find. Um, so we'll see. I think this, this, even though it's only one individual and not enough to base a scientific study on, it'll certainly give us a good idea. But now having collared that one, you have the opportunity to potentially, you know, increase the collar we, numbers and study more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we'd definitely like to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible that you have through, through a, a care of understanding you have all of these data points and you're able to have conversations like you're having right now with real depth of knowledge yeah. because of this background of work that's gone on. And that's, this isn't something that just happens over a year. This is many, many years of gradually increasing your knowledge base and understanding to be able to manage a, a huge system properly. We've, we're very, very fortunate on that side that we've had such fantastic backing mm. because to be honest with you, these safari operations, they, they're relatively profitable. I mean, you know, I survive. That's my main income. But you couldn't fund as much as we fund with the scientific side, the communities, the anti-poaching. You know, we… So we, even with uh, a safari operation run well, yeah. like, like this place is, all of this, this kind of cherry on top, all these amazing things that we're seeing, you're saying that you probably wouldn't be able to fund that. You need a bit of help. Okay. I can tell you right now, we budget every year for $100,000 from our hunting revenue, and that goes straight back into community and anti-poaching. But it isn't enough to do the whole, the whole thing at the level that we're doing it now. No, you can't siphon off enough to do cheetah relocations and Ryan relocations not. and all the yeah. collaring and the yeah. flying. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, what, what's that been like, your relationship with the Cabela Family Foundation? You know, it's been a, it's been a great relationship. Um, we've been lucky to have a few good relationships, theirs being the very best of the whole lot. But I think the amazing thing is, is they genuinely, genuinely have an interest in conservation. They're not doing it simply for the propaganda or to say, well, the uh, Cabela's did great out of the hunting for so long, we're putting back... They actually love this, you know. I mean, you look at Mary. She is so passionate about this. Um, and they genuinely hands-on. Uh, you know, when we sit down and have the meeting with Dan every night, it's okay, who's going to be on tomorrow? Who's going to be involved in the collaring? And it's, it's an absolute cherry for them. So working with people that don't just give you a check and disappear. I mean, I virtually have a conversation of one form or another with Dan once or twice a week. And so, well, how's this line doing? What's that one up to? Gee, whiskers, we've had more cubs. Or, you know, it's, it's just what's going on all the time. And I think we're very privileged to have that relationship with him. 
Yeah, I got some, I could, I could see, I mean, I have some photos of Mary getting out of the helicopter, seeing, especially when we collared the first lion cub born yes. here, or yes. that, that next generation of lion yeah. cubs. And she, she was visibly emotional and, and very is, excited absolutely. about, yeah. yeah. She sees them as her babies in a, in a, in a sense. An extension of her does. family. Yeah. Her vast family. Mother, yeah. mother of lions. Yeah. yeah. We have a, a WhatsApp group uh, with Mary on it. And uh, yeah, the, the banter's every second or third day, picture of a lion and just arbitrary stuff, you know, right down to the bugs and whatever else. But she's hands on with what goes on here, as is Dan. And the greater family have a, a big interest in it. Um, last year, we were meant to have 20 three, I think, people from the Cabela family, but uh, COVID put a, a stop to that. Um, unfortunately, lots of them had prior plans for this year, so we ended up with 13 of them. But the ones that didn't make it last year are coming next year. So, you know, and as you've probably seen, it's not like a big full bag safari here. They, they're not coming here to to shoot a dozen animals. They, they're taking a couple of animals on the side, but they're coming here to experience the whole story and the conservation model that the Cabela Foundation and is the primary primary aim for them. What's the next? I mean, I was saying, what's the next big thing for you here? Obviously, the cheetah that, is, that are in the Bowman that we we've spoken at length about with other people about what was involved in actually facilitating that in the first place, and it's an incredible story. And hopefully, they're going to go out in the next couple of weeks. But beyond the the cheetah relocation that's just happened, what's the next? big thing for you guys here to be honest with you the, you lions, <laughs> the lions were were far more than having never done it before yeah it sounded like well we'll bring the lions in we'll let them go we'll look over their shoulders and it'll all be hunky-dory we never had any clue uh, what we'd bitten off and uh, I mean within a week of releasing the lions the first lion was in a gin trap I can't tell you how devastating it was and how much how much more hands-on we became and how we upped, we upped the anti-poaching. A lion would move in an area. The anti-poaching would immediately go to that area and sweep the area and make sure there was no poaching. And you know, So the lions are a lot more robust than cheetahs, um, I believe. I don't know a lot about cheetahs, and uh, it's going to be a steep Good thing you've got Vincent there on call. Absolutely. Because yeah. there's a man who knows pretty much everything My there word. is to know about yeah. cheetahs. So I think that right now we just got to batten down the hatches and make absolutely sure the cheetahs work. It's going to be a bit of a long haul. We've only got four females. Ideally, we'd like to have probably eight. So we'll, we hope to bring in a couple more in the future. And I think it'll probably be a good five-year project to get them to where we want them. And I don't really want to think of too much more. No, that's fair. That. That's yeah. fair. I mean – yeah, at some point, hopefully, you're going to be flying, doing something else that you're doing on a weekly basis here, and you're going to see cheetah hunting. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be before we know it. Eh? Yeah, that will I, be remarkable. Yeah. I think that the the one area that we're going to carry on with a lot of gusto is the community. Yeah. Because if this is going to survive for my grandkids, they've got to have some form of ownership, um, major participation major benefits look they are getting major benefits already but it's got to continue you know it's got to continue that it's almost an elitist thing well we live in Katada 11 you know we're well taken care of the uh, wildlife supports us you know we have to we have to strive totally for that point 
maybe even towards the education with, within, get more involved in the education, not just building a school, maybe a bit of our environmental education too. Yeah. But I think we've got to, we've got, we're going to have to really move in the direction of more and more involvement from community. Well, Mark, you've got a remarkable system here. And it's it's truly impressive, you know what what your team has managed to achieve, and the A team. Yeah, you it's, got an A it's, team. I think <laughs> it's an amazing model to show what's possible in 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 a world where we are continually putting fences around things to protect them. Yeah. We're kicking people out, putting fences around them, and they're just the these silos of inverted commas conservation that we go and visit. Here, there's clear participation. Mm. And well, thank you. It, it's 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 fantastic to see. The, the, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's a team, it's a team scenario here. Um, Mark on that side asked me last year if he could write a book about me. I said absolutely not, because it's not about me. It's about so many people. I mean, it's about it's about the anti poaching unit at grassroots level. It's at, it's about them. The management and the and the professional hunters I've got here who's so passionate about looking after it. It's about people like Ivan Carter who has gee whiskers. You know he's got stuck in and fundraised and helped us on so many areas. Like people like Dan Cabela, um, Carolyn Huckabee, uh, Doug Samuelson. I can go on for hours and hours, but it's there's such a big story about it, and I'm just very blessed to be a little part of it. Well, thank you for having us here. And You're thank really you for welcome. your time today to tell us a bit more about it. Uh, really it's welcome. a real privilege to be here. We'll expect to see you guys back in a year's time. Oh, you don't need to ask us I twice. Don't, I don't think it'll be a year. A year? <laughs> I think, I think when, when the first cheetah cubs come along. Oh, eh? yeah. When, when you, if you see somebody hanging, onto the, ha hanging underneath the helicopter coming in one day, it's yeah. probably us hitching a ride from Byron. <laughs> I'm going to put a collar on Dustin so, that I, so I know when his, when his charter flights are and I can Good idea. hide Good into idea. The, the cargo. I'll send you that collar data. Please so do. I need it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Thanks.